Welcome to episode 79 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, our special guest is Patrick McKenzie, bingo card creator, creator, blogger extraordinaire, and internet rock star. Hey, Patrick, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Patrick, so over the past year or so, we've uh, watched you ascend the level of Hacker News rock stardom based on all of your <laughs> blogging about metrics and uh, optimization. And uh, now having been an invited speaker at the recent uh, Business of Software conference, it looks like you're about to move on to the next level and become a full-on tech celebrity or maybe even a celebritant. So, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, it, I'm just kind of curious, how do you feel about your, I don't know, growing fame? Because, you know, you, you're sort of this humble uh, software developer and, you know, you just seem to be becoming re really well known. Well, I'm kind of weirded out, honestly, when I go in the room and people know who I am. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm really comfortable being referred to as a celebrity. I'm just a little guy who has a little business. Mm -hmm. um, I know some things. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you recently wrote a, a really uh, long and informative um, sort of review of the Business of Software Conference, which was what? Was that hosted by uh, Joel Spolsky? Joel Spolsky and Neil Davidson from Red Hat in the UK. Oh, okay. And that was up in Boston, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, I, I think it was funny in, in a couple of talks that Bingo Card Creator was actually used in, as an example. I think. Like, yeah, I got name-checked from the stage about three times. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> that is really funny. I think Jason Cohen used you as an example in the King versus Rich Matrix. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And, uh, yep. And then the, what, Peldy? Use you as an example of like is a, is a niche too small? Was that was that Peldy? You said that? Yeah, that was Peldy. Uh, that was funny though. Um, I heard from about three attendees later that they thought it was a funny Italian joke. You know, she, <laughs> she flashed a screenshot of Bingo Card Creator, and a lot of people thought he went to a lot of effort for a fifteen-second joke in his presentation. And then later in my presentation, I mentioned that I had the software, and uh, they're like, "Whoa, it actually exists," <laughs> which is not right. the first time that has happened to me. <laughs> Well, why don't we get into a little bit about your background with uh, the creation of Bingo Card Creator, because I'm sure there are some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the whole story. Um, now, first of all, to, you were living in Japan, or you've been living in Japan for, I guess, quite a while now, right? About the last uh, six years and change, yeah. Now, was that something you did? Did you study Japanese in college or something like that, and then just decide to go there to, to you know, strengthen your uh, language skills, or why did you move to Japan? Uh, that's pretty much the uh, uh, the long and short of it. When I was in college, I knew I wanted to be an engineer, but uh, didn't know if I'd be able to compete with 100,000 engineers graduating every year in India and China, which was in the Wall Street Journal about every week back then. Right. And I thought, well, if I could do one other thing besides engineering, uh, like, say, having strong language skills in, uh, in uh, Japan, uh, Japanese, then I'd be able to, you know, play the Venn diagram game. You draw the Venn diagram of people who can program and... Uh, with the other circle of people who speak uh, Japanese and English very well, and the intersection is about oh eight people, and right. all of the you know the other seven of them all had already have jobs. So I'll get a nice, safe, secure job at Microsoft, which was my ideal job back at the time. And when I graduated college, I didn't quite have the level of business Japanese that I need to get a nice, safe job at Microsoft. So I went over to Japan on the JET program, it's the International Exchange Program, to do technical translation for a few years which I thought, okay, I'll firm up my technical and business Japanese and then come back and get a nice safe job at Microsoft. Um, right. And so after staying in Japan at a technology incubator in Gifu Prefecture, uh, Gifu Prefecture is Japan's answer to Kansas, 
Okay. Um, so after being here for about three years, I thought, wow, I really like this place that I'm living. I think I'll stay a little while longer. So I finished up that contract and then became an engineer at a, um, a Japanese company in Nagoya, which will rename Nameless. Uh, but it isn't that Japanese company in Nagoya. And if you if you know where Nagoya is, you know what that company is. Okay. Um, so about four and a half years ago, so back when I was still at the technology incubator, uh, I was very, very under-challenged at work. And um, I'd been kicking around the idea of eventually, oh, maybe someday it would be nice to go into business. And the bingo card thing kind of fell into my lap. Um, what happened was, so... Because I was under-challenged at work, I would uh, ask my bosses, look, is there any other work I can do? And they said, well, there's this uh, uh, email mailing list of all the English teachers in the prefecture. And sometimes they you know, send an email to the mailing list because those are the only people in the prefecture who actually speak English and uh, ask questions like, for example, how do I make bingo cards for class tomorrow? <laughs> and so I was right. supposed to like look at this mailing list and you know, answer their questions. And so I wrote back how to make bingo cards for class. Well, there's this thing called the search engine, and if you go to Google, you can search for things like how do I make bingo cards, and it will show you software, and you can use the software to make bingo cards. And someone right. writes me an email back and says, well, yeah, thanks, genius, but I already did that, and it doesn't work. <laughs> there is no software that creates bingo cards. Well, there was actually software that creates bingo cards, but I, I Googled it up, and sure enough, it would not work for a T-shirt. Um, oh, okay. He had to make every card individually, which kind of defeats the purpose. Mm, right. So I thought, wow, you know. But I mean, the interesting thing is, if I had gone through that same process, when I came across bingo card concept, I, I wouldn't think to myself, I could actually build a revenue generating business out of this. What made you think that can happen here? So here's what happened. First of all, I had four hours uh, free that day at work. So in four hours, I cobbled together the worst application I've ever made in my life, and it was the the pre-pre-pre-predecessor to Bingo Card Creator, just a Java swing app that would um, basically create HTML bingo cards, dump them to a file, and then you'd have to open them in the browser and print them through IE. And so I mailed that to the mailing list. There's 120 people on the mailing list. I come back to work the next day, and I had 60 emails. 30 of them said, this is the most wonderful thing ever. Thank you. You've saved me hours. And 30 of them said, it doesn't work on my machine. I need this working by the end of the week. Please fix now. <laughs> oh so it's God. welcome to the world of software, right? I guess right. half the people are, ha are happy and half the people are miserable. Right. But the notion that, okay, out of a list of you know 100 or 120 people in a tiny prefecture in the middle of Japan, I could get 50, uh, 60 people who would take time out of their day to write me about it. I thought, wow, I must have hit on something here. So later that month when I thought, okay, I want to finally you know, do something about making a business, uh, the bingo thing was a pretty obvious candidate. So I did a clean room implementation at back at home so that I would own the IP instead of uh, my day job owning the IP and then pretty much went from there. Uh, before we go any further, could you just explain what a prefecture is exactly? A prefecture. So if you're from America, you call it a state. And if you're from Canada, you call it a province. And if you're from Japan, you call it a prefecture. That's about it. Okay. 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 Um, so, all right. So you, one, one thing I'd ask you is, so what was your job exactly? Were you writing software um, for the company you're working for at the time? So I was uh, theoretically quote, a coordinator of international relations for the research and development group, end quote. Um, okay. In practice, that meant that I was doing a lot of translation and interpretation, but since uh, 
Uh, small prefectures in central Japan don't necessarily have a full workload of translation and interpretation. Um, they also had me doing some uh, research and development for the research and development group. Uh, I worked on things like a spam filter that integrated with uh, Outlook and used the pop file. It's a Perl program. Very good, by the way. Right. And uh, did some grid computing, uh, did some uh, AI projects. Also contributed some OSS patches to Mega Mech, which is a mech game. Uh- Okay, so you are so you knew how to code already. I was just wondering if this if you you know had just built this um, prototype for Bigo Car Creator just you know for the first, oh. you know, that was like your first piece of software or something. Well, so theoretically, I have a degree in computer science and I had spent uh, about four years doing uh, four or five years doing Java coding at that point, um, counting the time in in uh, school, but. Uh, We'll put question marks around knew how to code because at that point I was uh, very much a novice in terms of professional engineering ability. Um, Bingo Card Fader wasn't actually in source control until about a year into the project. <laughs> oh, that's that's you're a man after Jason's own heart with that statement. Okay, so you built this very first version, and then you know it's one thing to build like a little prototype that you allow some you know people you know use. I mean, how did it evolve past that? Well, so. Um, I was having a discussion with my father on the, uh, and said, you know, I think I want to uh, start a business. And my dad said, well, I don't know if you're really going to be successful as doing a business. You should just get a better job. I said, no, no, you know, these days uh, it's easy to start a business on the Internet. You can get customers through AdWords, and all you have to do is program something and throw up a website. I bet I could do it in about a week. And he said, nah, there's no possible way you could do a business in about a week. So I looked at the calendar and figured... Okay, well, July 1st is eight days from now, so I should probably be able to launch on July 1st. And uh, then, well, just just about did that, basically. Um, that was the first and only week that I've worked a full work week on Bingo Card Creator prior to quitting my day job. It was about 50 hours. Well, just, so uh, th- well, this is like a, we said, this is like a vacation or something? Not a vacation. I just did a, did a work week at the not-so-challenging day job, got out at 4 uh. o'clock like usual, and then worked until midnight or 2 a.m. Uh, oh, I see. And, and so, you, so you started just selling it using, what was the payment mechanism and, and stuff like that? I mean, how, how did you set up sort of your store? Oh, since, uh, so long story short there, uh, since day one I've been taking money through PayPal and, um, and at the time I used something called Accelerate, which is a legacy payment processor from uh, Digital River. I wouldn't recommend them. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, there is a uh, a system called payloads, which is P A Y L O A D Z, which is sort of for ebook sellers, and that um, it handles the PayPal, you know, all the the web program that programming that you need to do to send someone a registration key after PayPal has sent an IPN notification. Right. And right. Uh, payloads had a at a very unfriendly pricing structure. And I later found a company called eJunkie, E-J-U-N-K-I-E, which does the same thing for $5 a month. And so I've been using eJunkie since then. Uh, wonderful company. Um, so eJunkie in conjunction and, with uh, PayPal right. is what you use now. Okay. And uh, some years later when Google de- uh, debuted their Google Checkout product, I started using that too. Luckily, eJunkie wraps both of them in consistent API, so I've never really had to dig into the the bowels of getting those two to work together. Does eJunkie create, um, it creates keys and you just have to know what that hash is and then you put that in your software. Is that the way it works? Um, so the way it originally worked was I created a list of 
let's say, 2,000 keys and that would work for the software and pass them to eJunkie. And then every time someone bought it, eJunkie would pop one off the stack and then email that to them. Um, I eventually did it so that uh, after I transitioned my site from plain HTML to Ruby on Rails a few years later, I put the key generation logic on my server, and each time someone purchases eJunkie, calls the script on my server, and I generate the next key and send it to them. I see. Now, you said you used Google Checkout as well. I mean, so what, when and why would you use Google Checkout as opposed to PayPal? I mean, you just kind of jump, you just experiment with one and move back and forth, or how does that, which one is used in which case? It's just to have two sales channels, I think. So, yeah, I use, uh, I give people two options. Um, the main reason I've always give people, given people two options is I know some people have a religious aversion to using PayPal. And okay. actually, some credit cards are banned from using PayPal if you have, uh, like, a corporate card, which is not, not totally unknown in American schools. Uh, they don't want people buying things through eBay, which... Okay, uh, well, well, well... That might why... be a good idea or a bad idea. Right. Now, okay, well, what about uh, Google Checkout? I mean, why not? If, if PayPal has some problems, why wouldn't you just use Google Checkout for everything? Or does that have some shortcomings as well? I think, personally, that Google Checkout is a much... Hmm. Maybe not much, but it's an inferior experience to PayPal. For one thing, um, in thousands of transactions with Google Checkout, I have only once found someone who had a Google Checkout account prior to using my service. Um, mm. Whereas, thanks to eBay, there are many, many people in my market that have PayPal accounts already. And uh, so, now I would expect that the that the conversion rate for PayPal would crush the conversion rate for Google Checkout. That doesn't actually turn out to be the case when I look at my numbers. But um, right. I certainly wouldn't want to get rid of one or the other. Right. And I've tested okay. that, and it doesn't help me. So, right. So, how did you get? Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, let's go back. So, you're um, you put it up on the web, and you you got the payment mechanism through, and then what? You had like probably like very few sales, and you're trying to figure out how do I scale this thing? How do I get this thing ramped up? Well, um, let's see. I launched on the business of software forums, and that was probably most of the people who heard about me for oh, the first month or so, uh, with the exception of people coming to one article that I had put on my website. So if you're an English teacher, the words Dolch sight words have meaning to you. Um, it's a list of words that were created by an uh, uh, English pedagogist in the 1930s, uh, sort of the, the minimum viable set of the English language that you need to know if you're a beginning reader. Okay. And they're grouped by grade level. And English teachers know that they need to teach the Dolch sight words, but they don't remember what the Dolch sight words actually are. So they'll search for things like Dolch sight words list. Right. And back in 2006, there was um, not really a good place on Google to find that. And this stuff is, you know, A, you can't copyright a fact, and B, these things are, would be out of copyright anyhow. So I just put up the lists on my website and said, all right, here they are. And then if you want an activity for them, why don't you try playing Dolch Slight Word Bingo, which you can handily make with Bingo Card Creator. Right, good idea. Eight cards, which no teacher can actually use eight cards for bingo cards um, uh, because they typically have more than eight students and you need a unique card for every student. Or if you want to create more than eight cards, download the free trial of the software. And people would download the free trial and they can only make 15 cards with the free trial, and very few American teachers have only 15 students, and then uh, end up purchasing. So I think I, I think I hit on that idea within about a week of launching and got my uh, first sale through that about a week after that. So two weeks to the first sale. Right. That's, right. That's fantastic. Okay. And this is what, back 2006, you said? 
2006. Um, that right. I launched on July 1st, 2006, so that would have been uh, July 15th, 17th or so. Okay. And, okay, well, we'll take us past that then. So you, after your first sale, I mean, you know, did you, were you just trying to, were you brainstorming like how you could get this to grow or how did, how did you go to the next level? Well, um, it took me a little while. I started experimenting with AdWords and for about a year, my, uh, um, AdWords was kind of a spend $1, make $1 or less kind of endeavor for me. Right. Um, the, after I saw the success that I was having which Dolch, with Dolch Sightwords, which was the majority of my sales for about the first year, um, I tried to scale that up. And uh, when I originally created my website, everything was HTML written in Notepad. And it took me about oh, two hours or so to write the one page in Notepad. Right. And I had an idea, okay, it would be ideal for me if, for any activity that a teacher wants to do tomorrow. If she wants to teach a lesson on anything. I should have that lesson bingo cards on my website. And if right. that's going to happen, um, I'm not going to be able to spend two hours on each activity because I'll go bonkers. Right. And I don't have that much time because I have a day job. So I thought, well, um, if I knew how to do web programming, which I didn't at the time, then I should be, uh, I could, you know, do a database, database back site, um, put these in a CMS somewhere, content management system and have the content management system uh, crunch up pages for me. And, you know, then if I have the content management system up, I can uh, farm it out to a freelancer. So uh, I started studying Ruby on Rails, bought myself the, the two books for it, and uh, relaunched my site with Ruby on Rails. Uh, still selling the, you know, downloadable Java program, but with a CMS on the back end, which at the time it didn't even uh, accept information. I would have to, like... Um, run a script that would import uh, things into the database directly and then that would um, uh, spin up uh, what did it do? It ran a rake file which would uh, create like if you were running the Ruby on Rails site in a Windows XP environment with Bingo Card Creator installed it would literally like move your mouse to operate Bingo Card Creator to create cards from the text files that you'd put in a, spe a specific folder to populate the database, and uh, it would, you know, screen grab things to grab images, and then, you know, manipulate the mouse to crop that, and then save that. Wow. So this was a hideously error-prone process, wow. but it was still a hundred times faster than me doing it by hand. Right. And um, then after I got done with that, I would, you know, commit everything to Subversion, and then upload it to the live website. Um, and eventually, I managed to. Uh, as I got more sophisticated as a web programmer, eliminate uh, um, many of the error-prone steps there. And then eventually, uh, last year, once I moved to uh, having an online version of the software as well, uh, the online version has to create bingo cards, so as a side effect, it's very easy for me to create bingo cards now. So um, the uh, website has you know gradually grown in terms of the features. The long tail seems to be... A very important part of your strategy. In fact, it seems to be the foundation of your business. Well, that's about 60% of my sales. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, I call it scalable content generation. I'm certainly not the only person who does this, but uh, uh, yeah, basically. It's um, a really good strategy. Very, very clever. So, so an example would be you'd create bingo cards for like holidays or something like that, right? The like Christmas or bingo cards. Halloween bingo cards is the number one bingo activity in a year. Uh, just uh, FYI. Right. I was, 
hoping to get about uh, twenty thousand dollars in sales this month, but it looks like it's not going to happen. Uh, trends. Not exactly sure why, but um, whatever. Uh, it's my number one month with a bullet always is October. Um, but you know, if that's the head of the query distribution, then for the next nine hundred forty activities, they follow sort of a long tail kind of distribution. Right. Uh, one of the things, if you read the long tail, there's tails. There's long tails within long tails. So you figure on the on an internet where people are searching for things like. Uh, pictures of naked ladies and credit cards and uh, Hannah Montana and bingo cards are kind of a niche activity and within that niche there's things that are popular like Halloween and things that are not so popular like Owls of East Asia but there's still someone who wants to play Owls of East Asia bingo card and is willing to pay $30 for it <laughs> it's so. like a, it's, it's, it's fractal right it's fractal yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I was just reading um, on Seth Seth Godin's blog. He was talking about the long tail and how you can then the long tail can go below water. And there are certain things that are just so long tail that they just get zero queries, right? So it's it, it's kind of like a fine balance of um, of long tail, but not going too ridiculously long tail. <laughs> so of the 940 bingo activities that I have, I can tell you with certainty that about 150 of them have ever generated the sale. And because they are so cheap to add a new one after you have the infrastructure to do it, it um, costs me $3.33 per additional activity. I get to keep them forever, and it, you know, a sale is worth minimally $30. It doesn't matter if uh, a portion of them are, you know, they don't have any sales in 2010 or 2011 or 2012. Uh, in aggregate, um, a new activity will become profitable four months after I add it to, its web- add it to my website. Why does it cost anything to, to add a new activity uh, because I don't do them myself I farm it out to a freelancer I see I see and a freelance, freelancer only costs you three dollars right to um, create a activity wow all she has to do is write you know a brief two sentence description of the activity put a name on it and then type in 25 words for the bingo card and then the website takes care of everything else Jeez, Justin I think there's a new career ahead of you <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be happy to make bingo cards that would be yeah a lot of fun okay so how did you get into the heavy duty optimization stuff i mean it's one thing to experiment a little bit with uh you know google adwords but you know you've become kind of the um the hacker news guru when it comes to the, comes to this i mean a, you know, the a b testing guru yeah basically. the a b testing optimization google analytics i mean google optimizer i i, I lose track of all the tools but i have yes. read a number uh, of your articles but i'm well how about we scope that to to one topic at once, and we'll talk about maybe uh, A-B testing for a while. Sure, that's fine. Go ahead. So, um, for I'm an engineer by training, and I feel much more comfortable doing the engineering than the marketing, although I found that marketing is an engineering discipline too. But um, I'd been doing A-B testing for the last couple of years, like most people do, with Google Website Optimizer. And Google Website Optimizer is terrible with capital T. Friends don't like friends use Google Website Optimizer. Um, okay. It's better than nothing, but not much better than nothing. Uh, and I could go into that topic for an hour, but uh, so I was looking for you know ways in uh, in Ruby on Rails to do A/B testing, and I found, to my surprise, there's really, uh, as of last year, uh, there really wasn't a good way to do A/B testing in Ruby on Rails. So I thought, well, you know, magic of open source. If I do something uh, that is the best way to do A/B testing on Ruby on Rails 
not only will I be able to benefit for myself by doing the A-B testing and increasing my conversion rates and making money directly, but I can use that byproduct of my business as a way to market my business. This is uh, sort of a 37 signals kind of concept. Now they're always, uh, you know, they throw off a book like Get Real or a product like Ruby on Rails as a byproduct of making their uh, project management software. And then they can use that to sell more project management software. Yeah, and they do a lot of, uh, they, Justin, uh, Jason Fried talks a lot about the idea of teaching and sharing and how that ultimately right. ends up helping your business. I'm 100% behind them on that. But have you actually made any money via, via the channel of developers and Bingo Card Creator? So I don't sell many copies of Bingo Card Creator to the Hacker News audience, kind of obviously. But there's, and I'll say I don't participate uh, with developers on the internet purely out of self-interest. Um, uh, it's a, a great sanity, uh, a sanity-saving measure for myself, too, because... In, in central Japan, there's very few people who you can talk to uh, about, you know, your entrepreneurial activities without someone deciding you're crazy. But um, <laughs> in terms of, like, direct measurable return to, to the business, there still is a lot of that. Uh, for example, so search engine optimization is very much a game of link acquisition. And, uh, you know, Mildred Smith, teacher in Kansas, does not really create as many links as someone on Hacker News because a person on Hacker News or an open source developer or somewhere, someone in that uh, uh, general demographic has like six blogs and they're linking to stuff every day and they link to things like software they use. So if I create the open source Ruby on Rails A-B testing library, they link to me. And so uh, I have my library is called A slash Bingo and it's hosted on my website. And so A Bingo gets a lot more links than Bingo Card Creator because A Bingo is... Uh, interesting to a link-rich audience of Ruby on Rails developers, and Bingo Card Creators interesting to a very link-poor audience of um, you know, elementary school teachers. But since Google sees links coming into my website for A-Bingo, they figure everything on my website is, all things being equal, more trustworthy than every other website on the internet uh, due to those link votes. About Bingo. Right. So now, did you? Uh, okay. Um, well, I'll just ask you one quick question. I mean, this wasn't something you thought of before you worked on the project. This was just sort of a, a side effect that turned out to work in your advantage. Kind of came up, yeah. I oh, I don't know. I'd say that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I've been studying search engine optimization on some level for about the last six years or so, since even before Bingo Card Creator existed. Uh, I actually gave a seminar on it at my XX day job. Uh, but um, you know. Uh, I'm not exactly a babe in the woods here on that subject. I get the feeling I'm talking to some kind of James Bond-level evil genius. <laughs> I'm not evil much. Uh, I, I think my favorite comment about uh, someone made about me with regards to search engine optimization is calling me one of the witch kings of SEO. The question is, am I a good witch or a bad witch? I like to think I'm a good witch. So one, one question I have for you, and this is a very cynical question. Is it possible that, because a lot of the things that you're talking about are things that you've observed within the niche that you're working in. So, sure. And I'm wondering, is it possible that the success that you've had has come so much easier because you just randomly and with luck stumbled onto an obscure niche that had a huge demand? Hmm. Um, like because, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm juxtaposing myself and, and Plugio against what you're doing, right? Okay. And because Plugio is in, is in the space of Twitter... 
mm-hmm. it's so much harder for me to do so any any of the kind of things that you're talking about because it's it's all drowned out by all the other noise whereas right. all the stuff that you're talking about isn't drowned out by noise because the niche is just so small so what's your impression on the number of competitors that i have i i, I couldn't answer i mean i actually don't have any idea okay so there's about 15 other shareware-style downloadable products that do bingo cards, plus about five web services, plus three companies listed on the American stock exchanges who create direct competitors, plus can be done in Microsoft Excel. So it's not exactly wow. like I'm in a market with no competitors. This is totally a blue ocean kind of thing. Okay, understood. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it, it, you, you, these myths sort of pop up, and they're easy to just sort of make these assumptions. And uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Now, were how many competitors were there when you when you first launched? So, um, almost all of those have were um, older than me. Uh, I think so. Let's call it. There were at least eight downloadable things and three web services. Um, at the time I launched, um, all of them sucked. <laughs> uh, right. Since then, there have been a few uh, copycats uh, of my software. Uh, one or two of them is pretty decent. And when I say copycats, I don't mean that lately. <laughs> this this goes this goes against um, the disruption theory that uh, Thomas was talking about the other day, Jason. Yeah, we, well, we just uh, just to let Patrick know, we interviewed a, a uh, we had a guest two, a week week ago, week and a half ago, um, by the name of Thomas Thurston, and his theory is that of disruption theory is that in order to compete against a an incumbent, you want to be worse and cheaper, but always improving. Is that right, Justin? I think that summarizes it. That, that's right, yeah. But um, it sounds it sounds like Patrick came out of the gate better. I don't know about the cost, but it sounds like you were a lot better than what was available, which is interesting. So on day one, I don't know if I was better. Uh, version 1.0 of my software was terrible, and it didn't have the, you know 940 bingo activities uh, that came with it. But um, I very much disagree that uh, competing on price is a good idea. Uh, I think I'm probably the second most expensive software in my niche, and the first most expensive is sold directly to school districts rather than being sold to, uh, sold to teachers. So we we don't compete except in a very, very, very narrow sense of the word. Um, mm-hmm. No one ever gets the choice to uh, to buy that software or to buy Bingo Card Creator because the person making the choice is not the same person. Do you does Bingo Card Creator is it multi language? So the software is only localized into English. The downloadable version will let you use any sort of uh, any language you can express in Unicode to make your cards. Uh, the online version doesn't. Uh, I intentionally did not sell it in Japan until April of this year because I had an agreement with my company that it would screw up their tax situation if I sold anything in Japan. So they said, as a condition of us letting you, you know, do this project, just don't market it in Japan. And I said, okay. Um, so- so, Justin, we kind of interrupted uh, Patrick's flow. So, Patrick, uh, so, you know, oh, yeah. you, you know, let's get him the, uh, back, back to us. So, on the topic of uh, whether competing via price makes sense, I don't think it does. Uh, one thing is that I think customers are a lot less price sensitive than we think they are. Um, you know, I have intimate knowledge of the other 15 uh, alternatives that there are for making bingo cards, but my customers don't. They just They just went to Google for something like American President's Bingo Cards, and they're probably going to make a purchasing decision on the first page they open. So rather than competing on price, I should be competing on you know the marketing channel that my customers care about, which is finding things on the Googles. Um, and uh, that's really the my main source of competitive strength is that 
I'm much better at internet style marketing than most of my competitors are. Um, right. And since I'm much better th- at internet style marketing, and I know that um, my my customers are typically you know women with stable jobs, uh, high salaries, and graduate degrees, uh, who don't necessarily find the difference between fifteen and thirty dollars to be very meaningful. I should charge thirty dollars instead of fifteen dollars. If they find one of my competitors for fifteen dollars and see me at thirty dollars, well, clearly I'm the better choice, right? By by being so generous with the with the information on on like how you've done it, th- does that not open you up to your competitors basically reading your blog and replicating everything you've done and listening you know listening to this show and replicating everything you've done and then you've kind of knocked yourself out of your own market? People have literally done that to me three times. Um, totally not joking there. There's at least two people on the business of software forums who sell or have attempted to sell a bingo card creating product and at least one of them uh, judging by a search engine uh, rankings is probably doing fairly decently with it um, but you know more the merrier I'm still after a couple of years I was able to quit my day job and do this full time uh, and I won't be the bingo guy for the rest of my life but uh, they're really not impeding my success in any way yeah it's it's it seems like Justin I, I just want to say it's, it seems like by doing by being transparent and being helpful and sharing what he's learned right he he could potentially invite in competitors and it looks like he has just like Peldy probably did when he talked so much about balsamic mockups and yeah. he yeah he <laughs> created an entire ecosystem of competitors really but okay so that's fine you know but at the same time he probably got a lot more benefit out of sharing and uh than he did but then he did as a result of um, well, they can more than make up for the number of competitors that it created. I remember Peldy having having an offline discussion with Peldy about that, and he said um, that essentially it almost pegs him as the leader of the pack. That's totally true. But you know, but by having those competitors, it kind of shows them that he's the leader. There's another factor too, which is that you can clone mockups. Anybody can clone mockups, but nobody can clone Peldy, and. Um, you know, he and his team are very, very passionate about the space. Uh, they have the reputation as being the thought leaders of it, and nobody else can have that reputation. You know, uh, in my space, like I don't necessarily want to be the internet guru for software, but I, I definitely do accept that my branding at the moment is the bingo guy. And when people look for the bingo guy, they don't find anybody you know who uh, used my uh, blog as a business plan. And did a knockoff of me, and then charged half the price. So, mm. uh, you know, if someone is looking for the authoritative answer on a bingo subject, they're going to cite me rather than him. Uh, that increases my SEO. Winners win in SEO. Uh, you know, um, getting getting your software knocked off is not nearly the death sentence that programmers think that it is. Interesting. Yes, yeah, that is interesting. Um, it seems like it's almost a good lesson: is that by being by being a generous person in life, there will be people who will try to take advantage of you, and on occasion you may be taken advantage of, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's a net net win, right? Many more people who, who will recognize that generosity and reward it in a variety of ways, whether it's on an individual basis right. or as sort of an aggregate. Um, like I think. Patrick is being rewarded in a number of ways via being invited, you know, for instance, just the most recent example is being invited to speak at the business software conference, right? Um, people are like, people are very appreciative of everything that 
Patrick has top them and shared. And bingo card creator, in a sense, while that's allowed Patrick to become financially independent, it's just sort of a platform. It's like a launching point to, for what may be a whole different sort of trajectory for Patrick. I don't know. What do you think, Patrick? I'm- right. I think it's... Um- you could call it a platform or you could call it my you know, secret laboratory where I get to test out all this stuff before inflicting it on other people. Right. Uh, the nice part about, you know, it would be very difficult as a 20-something in central Japan to be given total control of a, um, a product and marketing budget and being able to test out you know, every theory you have about marketing and see if it works. But since I have total control of Bingo Card Creator, I can do things like saying, okay, People are writing a lot about A-B testing now. Does A-B testing really work? The answer after a year, yes, it does. A-B testing really does move the needle. And I can take that information and then use it in uh, fields that are a little more lucrative than bingo cards for elementary school teachers. Um, also, yeah. uh, like well, you were well, saying, well. I've had more opportunities than I can literally even tell you about because of being generous. Um, one of the things that I read, I think Guy Kawasaki's said, Guy Kawasaki said it was create more value than you capture and that that it's been totally true in my experience uh, if you're generous with people people are generous to you in return yeah, you know, it, a couple of things you said remind me of, I, I think, uh, things that we've learned from some other people on the, in the internet tech space. One is um, uh, Derek Sivers wrote an article about how a company is a laboratory. So for him, mm-hmm. he always needs a company because he wants to experiment and try ideas, which is exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing to read right. or read blogs and about how this is how you do something or this is probably the best way to do marketing or write code or whatever. It's nothing to actually just go out and experiment and try it. I mean, that's what really matters. Right. And, uh, this, mm-hmm. and the other thing was what Seth's, Seth Godin said at the Business of uh, Software Conference, which you summarized um, very nicely, was he said something that was like software is, is now about creating a tribe. It's not about writing software. And right. in a sense, um, I think you are doing that and I think that um, definitely um, uh, Peldy has done that with Balsamic right I mean he has a, a tribe <laughs> of people who look to him as like hey this is just they're very impressed with him as a person and what he's done as an entrepreneur and mm-hmm. as a technologist and that's as you said much more valuable than maybe the code itself right um, I might take a little issue with Seth Godin in that I don't think that software is going away as a business and that was sort of the the, the takeaway for his talk is that, you know, software qua, um, qua uh, just the implementation is get like the value of that is trending towards zero. And I think, right. you know, you can look at software. Software still de- has a non-zero value to people. But um, mm. uh, in terms of marketing, it, yeah, uh, creating, a, creating a movement around your software is definitely nice if you can arrange it. If it's difficult to create a movement around your software, like, um, hmm. So a lot of my, a lot of the teachers, and this this has surprised me over the last couple of years. A lot of teachers really get enjoyment and use out of my software more than I thought they would. Like I thought, mm-hmm. you know, solves a problem for them, maybe uh, saves an hour of their day, and that's that's worthwhile. Like going to a dry cleaner is worthwhile, but no one says, "Wow, I went to a dry cleaner today." <laughs> but it turns out that some people do say, "Wow, I made bingo cards today." And I get like you know postcards to that effect, but it's not a you know life changing software for people that like say Facebook. I, is. I was going to ask you like when you first stumbled onto the niche, how did mm-hmm. you get yourself? How did you get passionate about bingo cards? 
The honest answer is that I am not passionate about bingo cards. Um, I'm passionate about having a business. I'm passionate about teaching. I was originally going to be a teacher. I've actually taught before. Um, but uh, bingo was just an obvious opportunity where teachers who have graduate degrees waste hours and hours of their lives with a ruler and construction paper making bingo cards by hand. And that is just a criminal waste of human potential when they could be either spending time with their own children or spending time making a difference in the lives of their kids in class. So wow. I thought, okay, this has to change. That's a great answer. And, and do you think that people, I mean, just, could, could you just like pluck a niche out of the air and, and turn it into a successful business? Is, is that what we're saying here? Essentially, anyone with technical skills who is willing to learn a little bit about the marketing stuff could do a business on the scale of bingo card creator or better, um, given enough given enough time and dedication to it. As, as, lo- as long as the, I guess, the niche has a significant number of people involved in the niche. Is that what we're saying? I don't know if I think that there's a niche that's too small, honestly. I mean, <laughs> what are you doing that's more niche than bingo cards for elementary school teachers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's almost like to prove a point. Like, it's almost like you said, look, if I can do a bingo card creator, anybody can can use my technique. So you, you've said, I'm going to pick the weakest <laughs> niche out there and just and show that it can be done. I didn't go out trying to pick the, like, worst possible well, idea for a software business, but... Well, I don't know, Patrick. I, I'm from definitely, what I can tell, you seem to you seem to think everything through before you do it. So yeah, <laughs> become suspicious. Uh, uh, no. Yeah, no, go on. I'm just I'm, see that's part no. of that's part of the magic of being a decent communicator. Everything sounds good in retrospect. <laughs> um, so, uh, so go on, pa- Patrick. I, I I interrupted you. Uh, you were answering Justin's question about the niche being too small, or no, that you were going out to uh, create Bingo Card Creator to prove that you could create a business out of a super micro niche i've been doing this for four and a half years now right and only six months ago managed to quit my day job um so it obviously you know seen from i'm looking at my sales graph right now okay so for back in december 2006 i sold like 350 dollars worth of software so it didn't look like a stunning success back then and then december of 2007 i sold a little less than a thousand dollars worth of software and it didn't look like stunning success back then and in December 2008, I sold $2,000 worth of software, and it didn't look like a stunning success back then. But, you know, it's obvious, right? Oh, yeah, the bingo cards, that was going to be huge. Right. That just seems amazing to me. I mean, the, I, I guess maybe this, is, this has been a big fault that I've had. I mean, I, if I had those numbers, I just wouldn't stick with it. Like, I'd be like, uh, 300 bucks in a year. You know, I've, been, I've given this a year. I only made 300 bucks. I'm done with this. Like, how did you stick it? How did you think, all right, I know that in three years' time, this is going to get me out of work. Time was going to get me out of work. Um, I, back when I started my software, uh, you know what my revenue target was? Like, the eventual asymptotic, this will approach number? <laughs> so, uh, Patrick, we lost you right when you said, you started talking about the asymptotic pri- uh, amount you were going to make. We, we'd never heard any of that idea was eventually you know if I work on this for a little while bingo cards will eventually sell $200 of software a month and after <laughs> subtracting expenses I'll be able to buy, buy a video game every month and not delay my student loan payments <laughs> that, those, are, those are modest goals but I like yeah wow okay. 
Well, we talk a lot about that, which is that, you know, if you, it's all about, a lot of about sticking with the project is about expectations. You say, if you think to yourself, okay, if I work on this, if I can just have it pay for my car payment a month, you know, you know, say $500 a month, or maybe pay for that in my health insurance. I mean, those are big, big uh, expenses. And if you could have some software that sort of with little minimal effort is generating that amount of money, I mean, that's fantastic. And that gives you that sort of like um, that psychological boost that you can go to the next level. It's like, oh, wow, I wonder if I could get it to, so it actually pays my rent or mortgage. And then, and then pretty soon you're up, you know, at even higher levels. I mean, did you use those sort of psychological tricks where, okay, it's buying me video games, but now I want it to pay for my student loans and my video games. So I'm now. We're now speaking to Patrick, uh, who's dialed in from Japan via VoIP, and um, because basically the signal was was completely lost over Skype. And of course, we're halfway through the interview, and we're chomping at the bit with some great questions, and we can't talk to Patrick anymore. So uh, the good news is that he's got VoIP and he's called in. So the quality is going to be a bit different, but at least we can actually get the information out. Great. Yeah. Hopefully, this will be decent enough when people are listening to it. Yeah, that's fine. So uh, I think the part that uh, we were breaking up is you were talking about um, how Bingo Card Creator was able to pay uh, enough for you to buy a video game every month without delaying your student loans. And what was the next level after that? What were you thinking past once you reached that point? Something that people had had mentioned and that was pie in the sky and would never happen was that... uh, you know, a bingo card creator might eventually pay enough to let me quit the day job. And I thought, no, I'll probably have to make another software to quit the day job. But uh, it would be nice if, you know, uh, I could, say, in a year pay for my, my plane ticket home for Christmas. And then uh, every time I made a new goal, I kind of shot past it rather faster than I expected to. Um, right. And then about shortly after I joined Hacker News, so maybe a year before I quit my job, so uh, this would have been early 2009. Then um, I was looking at the uh, I was looking at the monthly stats for well, probably uh, must have been February because that would have been uh, Valentine's Day bingo cards, and was looking at the monthly stats and looking at my paycheck and thinking, oh goodness, if, if this continues for a while, I could do this full time. And then so after that, uh, well, doing it full time was kind of the next goal. Mm. Right. Now, how did you get into all of you of using all of these advanced metrics and optimization and A/B techniques? Um, I spend far too much time reading things on the internet, and I like trying out stuff that I learned. So, uh, you know, read about A/B testing, decided to try it out, did so. Um, read a lot about search engine optimization, decided to try it out, did so. Read a lot about uh, funnel optimization, decided to try it out, did so. Um, Basically, you know, and I've done a lot of things that haven't worked as well as those. Uh, uh, but something, an example of something that did not work well. Uh, to do way back early in my business, I posted on forums in there with, uh, you know, like teacher forums. And I would go to the teacher forum and go to their ad section and say, hey, I've got this software called Bingo Card Creator. Uh, why don't you give it a spin? And, uh, and that worked terribly. I've used a lot of different internet advertising products, which worked much less well than uh, AdSense does. Um, but the stuff that works, works extraordinarily well for me, and as I'm finding with my consulting gigs, it works well for other people, too. So AdSense and AdWords works for you. Can you t- talk a little bit about, about that? Sure. Um, actually, so AdWords was one of the 
the early surprises for me. It took me about a year to get it to where it was actually working well. And um, one of the things was, uh, from my time on the business of software forums and talking to other people, I had the impression that the Google Content Network, which is you know when they put ads on people's websites, was a hive of scum and villainy that uh, basically delivered uh, overpriced clicks that had no quality traffic behind them. And so I disabled the content network and only sold ads on the search network, you know, which is you know the ads that you see on the side of Google.com. And that was not so not so hot for me. I spent a year trying to crack the code and get AdWords to work well, but couldn't find a way to uh, spend a scalable amount of money in a profitable fashion. And then uh, somebody on the uh, forum said, well, you should try the content network because I do it for my business. He sold language learning software, and it really works for me. And so I thought, well, I wouldn't trust that from anybody else, but I trust this guy from the forums. So I tried it uh, on the content network for a little while and had modest success, but spent almost all of my time uh, playing whack-a-mole with all these spam sites that were delivering, you know, traffic because they put AdWords all over the content on their pages and people would click that because they didn't see anything else to click. Uh, and so I was playing whack-a-mole and getting very frustrated. And Google debuted with a product called Google um, Conversion Optimizer where their you know, magic secret sauce algorithms would pick the best keywords or the best sites for the internet on the internet to advertise for you. And it would automatically adjust your bids so that it was maximally profitable for whatever the given keyword or ad site, uh, website was. And um, so I was one of their first customers for that. And one of their first customers that actually succeeded with it, and then I blogged about succeeding with it because you know, I blogged about everything for my business. And if you, maybe three, three or four weeks after the launch of that product, if you Googled Google Conversion Optimizer, results one and two were on Google.com and result number three and four was my blog. Wow. And uh, so I'm assuming their product manager found it that way. But uh, they found that I was having a lot of success. And they said, hey, would you write a white paper with us? And I'm like, Google wants to use me as an example of <laughs> successful software marketing on the Internet. <laughs> There's just so much wrong with this. So I stayed up for, you know, for a phone call at 3 a.m. in the morning to Mountain View. And uh, we hammered out a white paper on it. And uh, so, yeah. Um, so AdWords works fairly well for me. It doesn't work as well these days um, because, you know, there's more competition and other people have, you know, clued in on the techniques that I use. But um, I think uh, maybe, yikes, so I spend about a quarter of my revenue on AdWords. Wow. So it strikes me that it, a really interesting thing that you might want to do, think about doing if you're not already thinking about doing is, is, is writing your own ebook based on this because you've, you've written so much already. But to sort of consolidate it and create like a, a you know, I would say a book, but an ebook almost seems like a better way to make revenue, um, you know, sort of, or at least a self published book, kind of like a la 37 Signals. And, and then. I have. Um, I've been told that a lot, and I don't think I'm going to write an ebook because the mathematics of it don't work out. Uh, here's okay. why. So, the core audience for my blog, you know, my most loyal fans is an audience of about 400 or 500 people. Um, if all of them buy an ebook, priced at you know any any price that I can rationally extract from them, uh, that works out to be X amount of money. Now, I can't tell you what I make consulting, but I make 
fairly decent amounts of money doing consulting, mm-hmm. and there's almost no set of circumstances in which uh, writing an ebook will be better value for me in terms of dollars per hour or dollars per frustration compared to uh, consulting for the same amount of time or the same amount of frustration. Well, what about um, giving, you know, seminars kind of like 37signal does on uh, op- these optimization techniques and AdWords techniques? I mean, you speak, you could do like a tour, right? You could do like a seminar, you know, five or 10 in different cities around the U.S. each year, and that would probably could bring in quite a bit of revenue. Mm, definitely. Um, that's interesting. I haven't thought of that one yet. Uh, I... Honestly, I kind of want to be the, I kind of want to be the guy who makes and sells software rather than the guru who tells people how to make and sell software. Um, I don't mind consulting because, well, the, it's very lucrative and it dovetails well with running a software product business. But I kind of want to, you know, just take the money I can get from that and reinvest it into making the next product. So, well, well, what um, what kind of consulting do you do specifically? Basically. Uh, all the stuff that you've read about on my blog that I do for Bingo Car Creator, I do it for other people. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, um, so there's a, there's a software company that you've heard of that I won't say their name yet because they're going to blog about our engagement in November. But um, um, they sell, let's call it, eight figures a year of software. And so I take the things that you know got me from three thousand. Uh, $3,000 to 3000 plus 5%, and then did it for them with the goal of getting them to eight figures plus 5%. Right. That's fantastic. And, and was that, did that happen after the article about how you were an underpaid genius showed up on the uh, web a month or two ago? Um, uh, no, we had that. We had the, uh, the dates already on the calendar, and I was literally halfway through my uh, pre-engagement preparation prior to that article coming out. One of the things that's really mind-bending for me is this this niche thing. And I, I remember reading about the fact that if you want to optimize, no, that it, it seems amazing to me that there is essentially an infinite number of search terms. And that is kind of mind-bending for me. And I think I feel the same way about this niche concept, being able to make money from any niche. And that's just like, wow. I don't know how to get my head around it. Well, you just figure, you know, the internet, the global economy is mind-bogglingly huge from the perspective of, you know, the needs of anyone or any small group of developers. Um, Much of that economy is strictly inferior to things that you can do with software. So if you can take something which either uh, is not being done with software and computerize it, or you take something which has a clearly inferior uh, solution in software, like, say, someone uh, doing almost any sort of business process in Microsoft Excel is probably a mistake. And, you know, replace that Excel spreadsheet with a software as a service for uh, 20 or 100 or or $1,000 a month or whatever you can extract. And you will almost certainly both contribute something of value to the world and make yourself a, a decent amount of money. That is some incredible advice. So uh, one, one thing that you talked about a while back was your um, transition from selling downloadable software to a web service or software as a service. Um, I think that's a really interesting topic because you weren't even convinced that going from downloadable software to a web service is going to work out. And um, I'd just like to kind of maybe have you walk us through your process with that and what you were thinking at the time. So 
I was kind of the last guy on the downloadable software is awesome bus, uh, <laughs> primarily because uh, I had gone to a Java school. Writing fat Java clients was what I knew, and you know I'm kind of the buggy whip manufacturer, right? If mm-hmm. I know how to make buggy whips, and I've been doing buggy whips my entire career, then darn it, there's going to be a market for buggy whips. <laughs> um, right. There is not really a market for buggy whips in the when there's an automobile available, and. Well, there is a market for downloadable software. I don't know if you can rationally try to, rationally try to go after it when you have uh, web-based software as an alternative. Uh, here's why. Um, while customers might enjoy downloadable software, and some of mine do, um, web-based software is easier to deploy, easier to support, easier to test, easier to evolve, easier to everything than downloadable software is. The conversion rates are much, much higher because there isn't anything like the, okay, I got it downloaded, then I've got to find where the download is on my computer, then I have to execute the download, then I have to you know, go through that scary prompt that I can't read because I never read anything on my computer, then I have to click through six screens on an installer that no one in the history of man has ever read, and then I have to find the, you know, the link on my desktop, and I have to click that, and I have to use the software, and then I have to find my way back to their website, and I have to buy the software, and then I have to get the registration key from my email and copy-paste, which I don't know how to do, and put that in the uh, software. And then since I can't do that, I've got to write the, write the creator and, and tell him that his registration number isn't working and because I put my email address into the blah, 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 blah. Just don't do it. Don't do it. If you have a choice, make a web version. If you don't have a choice... Make a web make version. Make a web version. Anyhow. Okay, here's a, here's a question for you. Do you think that I should be doing that with Swarm then? Swarm, which is my essentially um, board game, which could certainly work in a, as a web version. Do you think I should forgo all other versions and just make a web version? Oh, wait, hold on. Does he, does, is Patrick aware that it's an iPad game? I don't know, Patrick, if you know anything about Swarm. It's an iPad-like board game. Oh, I, I wasn't aware that it's iPad. iPad, um, iPad iPhone... Uh, and that market has a few things going for it that classical download software doesn't. Um, one is they've got the built-in distribution channel through the App Store. Another is that the experience of downloading, installing, and running software is much more streamlined than it is on any other platform available. And that mitigates some of the problems with having a, a downloadable version. However, um, uh, there's many built-in opportunities for like marketing web things that you get by virtue of being of having a publicly accessible website that are not automatically uh, as easy to use by having you know an a iPad application. Uh, my feeling is that a lot of developers they see the built-in distribution that you get from being in the App Store. They think, okay, that is my marketing strategy. And I think that's highly suboptimal. Um, if you had a website with you know, acres and acres of content on it. You could uh, also be getting uh, traffic through organic SEO. There's a lot of talk about um, in in the tech press about the death of the web and that that apps. Uh, you know, people like the New York Times are creating apps and putting them on Android in the App Store, and that essentially New York Times is now being consumed as an app versus <coughs> being consumed on the web. What do you think about that? That kind of stuff. That kind of talk. I think that. Tech people write a lot of things because they need to sell articles. <laughs> Good answer. I like that. <laughs> so, um, 
you're you're moving on to another or you're actually not moving on but you're creating a second product called appointment reminder um why don't you tell, tell us a little bit? my third second product <laughs> oh right okay what were so, your first and second oh, can second I tell products? You, can i tell you a brief digression on this sure so, um, absolutely hey yeah, this whole show so, is a digression so whatever you want to talk about feel free so i've had a couple of um, back prior to quitting the day job, when I still thought it would take a second product to allow me to quit the day job, mm-hmm. I started on something that was cold named Calzumius, which eventually became the name of my blog. Uh, it was going to be a, a uh, rent collection uh, software for landlords, which would easily allow them to collect rent through PayPal. Um, and I wrote some code for that and did some you know, speaking to customers and whatnot. And one thing that I found when talking to customers is that um, ACH, Automated Clearinghouse, uh, debits from their, uh, from people's checking accounts are much, much more economical than PayPal will ever be. And with the, with the structure of um, uh, the sort of residential housing market, the amount of bite that PayPal would take out of rent payments is just totally more than the customers were willing to pay for rent management. And so I couldn't make it couldn't make it work so that my the the combined cost of my software plus the PayPal, uh, you know, three percent or whatever, would uh, be worthwhile to my customers. And so I quietly killed that. And then after that, I had an idea called Widget Bakery. Um, so one of the the various SEO tricks that I've tried over the years is you provide some sort of a valuable thing that people can use on their own website uh, that you call that a widget, and um, and then your widget links back to your site with your keywords in it. So to give you an example, uh, if you go to Stack Overflow, Stack Overflow is uh, one of the – oops, am I, are we still here? Yep, yep. Okay. So Stack Overflow lets you gain points by proving how, how great of a programmer you are and how much you've contributed to the community. And uh, they'll let you get something called Flare, which is a little – widget, you copy-paste the code from their website, and it will show on your site an image saying, you know, this guy has 15,000 points, and they've been earned by his expertise in Ruby. And then after that, it'll say, uh, it'll give a link to Stack Overflow. And so that link, if I, if I copy that widget into the, the sidebar of my blog to show how awesome of a Ruby programmer I am, that's a vote from my blog to Stack Overflow that Stack Overflow is a useful site. And so I thought, well, you know, bakeries and uh, and hobbyists don't really have the technical resources to create widgets. So I'll make a uh, a site that would create the widgets for them in a simple you know drag and drop, no programming kind of environment. Let them easily skin them, and then they can distribute them them to their customers, and uh, thereby you know get the direct traffic and the branding and the SEO benefits of having widgets. And in return for hosting these widgets, I would charge them money on a software-as-a-service basis. And so I started talking to people about, okay, um, here's what a widget is. Here's why you want it on your website. Um, would this interest you? And then I found something. Um, the people who are sort of like the early adopters in the widget space or any sort of SEO-focused product are not people I would really like to do business with. Um, it's things like payday loan companies and uh, payday loan companies, uh, what we call PPC in SEO, porn pills and casino. Right, uh, right. And, and they're very savvy. And as soon as you describe, you know, widgets to them, they're like, I totally get this. I will pay, you know, 
well, they won't pay huge amounts of money, but then, yes, I would buy that. And then I talk to people who, you know, run bakeries or run hair salons. They're like, wait, why would I pay you money to put something on other people's websites? I want to pay money to get my website better. <laughs> I'd explain to them, no, widgets make your website better, and they were not having it. So after writing some code for this and uh, sinking some money into the design, I thought, well, uh, what's going to happen is I'm going to launch this, and all the uh, customers that I get right out of the gate are going to be in CD industries, and they're going to, A, destroy my reputation, and B, Google is going to see that I'm a spam guy doing business with all these CD industries, and they're probably going to burn my website to the ground, possibly taking the bingo cards with it because it's owned by the same person. I thought, that would really suck. So mm-hmm. I just that idea, too. So the third, the third second product, the one that I hope will actually work, is called Appointment Reminder. And uh, the thumbnail sketch of this is that if you run a professional services business like a hair salon or a massage therapist or uh, a law office, you have um, a model where if you're with a client, you're making money. And if you're not with a client, you're not making money. And if you tell a client to come at 3 o'clock on Tuesday and they don't show at 3 o'clock on Tuesday, that's an hour or an hour and a half of your time that you'll never get back. and You lose revenue for that. So it would be awesome if you had a way to tell clients that, okay, you have an appointment at 3 o'clock on Tuesday, don't forget, without having to take time of your busy, out of your busy day and call them getting their answering machine and uh, leaving them a voicemail. And so because there's something called Twilio, which is an API that lets you make uh, uh, phone calls and uh, send text messages in a programmable manner, this can actually be done by a CRUD app these days. So I thought, aha, I will make a a fairly simple CRUD app that will uh, do these appointment reminders automatically. And because it demonstrates clear value to the customer, it literally, like within 48 hours of you starting to use this, it will start increasing your revenue. Um, I should be able to charge decent amounts of money for that. And so uh, I started coding that right after I left the day job and had a demo ready in about oh, a month and a half or so. And I've released the demo and not really done so much uh, since then because I've been slammed with consulting. But uh, reaction to the demo has been kind of extraordinary. People literally call me up in Japan and they say, yeah, I saw it on your website. It looks awesome. I can't find the buy button, which is a nice problem to have. Right. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. My only worry, my only fear for you is that is that it's not niche enough. <laughs> so I I haven't figured out an obvious uh, content strategy for it, like the you know the bingo card content thing. But I've got some ideas. Um, I think I'll find it eventually, and uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about this one. Hmm. I think it sounds like a great idea. So uh, one thing I'd be curious about is what got you start started blogging in the first place. I mean, you are you you write. You write well, and you write a lot. And I'm wondering, are you someone who has always written a lot, uh, and and then just this is just another outlet, or was this your first sort of foray into sort of a regular um, writing? Um, I don't know how I describe it, but uh, it was just your first so been, effort, and really I've been spending yeah. too much time on the internet for a long, long time. Uh, I didn't ever have a blog before. The oh, that's not true had a little live journal kind of, you know, share updates with high school friends kind of thing for a while, but um, I didn't really write for, uh, much for that. Um, but I've always considered myself kind of a professional communicator who may also be able to write Java code on the side. I, I was a translator originally, right? And 
the reason translating didn't work for me was I was always, you know, as a translator, you have to say what other people say. And I always thought, well, I want to say it better, darn it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so um, the thing that got me started blogging was uh, one of the major inspirations for me for actually getting off my death and making a business was spending time on the uh, Joel Spolsky's business software forums. And I was uh, really influenced into doing the, uh, you know, actually going forward and by seeing other people's accounts of the success that they'd had with uh, businesses that you might not um, assume would be that that uh, successful. Like uh, there's Brian, Brian, what's his name, Raymondson or something. I'll, I can find his name for you later. But uh, he had a skeet shooting software business. And he wrote a blog post about that, and that was really motivational for me. I thought, well, if this turns into anything, it would have been great uh, if I had, you know, left breadcrumbs for the next guy. So I started blogging right about the same time as I started my business and just blogged through the whole creation of the software and kind of, you know, I blog more sometimes and less other times, but just kept it up since then. When you when you finished, um, well, when you decided to do your second product, I know you're, you're now on your third second product. When right. you decided to look for that, um, at, at, the, at that point, basically the world is your oyster. You can choose absolutely anything, any possible concept. How do you come up with the ideas and how did you whittle them? How did you, you know, settle down from the infinite possibilities to appointment reminder? How did you get to get there? Um, that is a good question. I don't really remember where I had the, uh, where I had the uh, inspiration for it. And I've probably blogged about that. And one of the things I like about my blog is that um, if I write things down and put them there, that means I can't forget them later because Google can function as my external memory. But um, uh, at some point, it became obvious to me that uh, the that a uh, someone missing an appointment costs, causes an immediate, obvious revenue impact to a business. And I thought, ooh, the words immediate negative impact to revenue that can be fixed with software. Um, it's, uh, that's kind of music to my ears as an entrepreneur because there's nothing quite so motivating in terms of you know, the, the benefits that you can sell someone as a business as this will make you money immediately when you start using it. And then I heard about this Twilio thing, uh, Twilio being the API that does the phone calls and SMSs, and I thought, oh, wow, uh, Twilio is powerful. That's going to make some huge, huge businesses. And I started like listing up you know, all the things that I thought I could do with Twilio. And then I came upon the appointment thing. And what really sold me on uh, appointment reminder as the next big thing for me was I sketched out sort of the, you know, a paper wireframe of what the demo would look like. And I thought, oh, man, that demo is going to be powerful. You can see it right now, actually, if you go to the appointmentreminder.org website. Yeah, I'm looking but, at it. Uh, uh, basically, uh, well, you can't do it when you're on the phone with me, but um, you put in your phone number, and the, it calls you and says, you know, uh, thanks for scheduling your fake appointment. Do you want to come hit one? If you can't come, hit two. And as soon as you hit one or two, it will show you in your browser that, okay, you've confirmed your fake appointment or you canceled your fake appointment. And if this were actually an appointment, uh, the fact that you know that it's been canceled allows you as a service provider to immediately reschedule someone else and save the revenue for that, uh, for that time slot. And I thought the combination of operating someone's browser automatically with Ajax and talking into their ear 
with a you know an MP3 file that I can have a nice calmly young lady uh, dictate for me um, would be an awesomely awesomely powerful demo. And people literally giggle when I do this for them. Uh, it makes a great <laughs> demo on the iPad, by the way. You bring out the iPad and say, "What's your cell phone number?" Type it in. Like, all right, you hold the iPad and listen to your cell phone with with the other hand, and just watch what happens. <laughs> we'll do that, and it, it's magical because people have never, you know, seen a computer operate their cell phone before. So, uh, so basically, it's it just you. You're thinking about a lot of different ideas all the time, and you're looking for something that sticks. Right, um, looking for something. You know, uh, one of my big things is that the technical complexity doesn't really matter. Uh, it can be simple or it can be complicated, but I was looking for hooks for marketing and uh, the, the just the outrageous quality of the, the user experience for the demo was really a thing that sold me on, the, uh, on this idea. So uh, you, one thing you've done, it seems like you've, or at least you've talked a little bit about is how you've been outsourcing certain things. Like the, I think you outsourced yep. some of the design for Appointment Reminder, and it sounds like you've done some outsourcing for Bingo Card Creator. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because what, what, I guess we had not too long ago um, Rob Walling, who, as it turns out, Justin and I, I think we're meeting him for uh, coffee tomorrow, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and he talks a lot about the power of uh, and the efficiency of outsourcing um, t- tasks that you don't absolutely have to do. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on outsourcing. So um, uh, I have to be careful what I say here because I did outsourcing management at the old day job. But um, mm-hmm. there's good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. And there's also good things to outsource and bad things to outsource. In general, things where your personal presence does not add value should either be outsourced, automated, or eliminated. Um, so, for example, uh, I do all of my customer support myself, and I think that that the experience of speaking to the founder is enormously helpful for customers. So, my presence there adds value. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, I'm an ex-teacher, but I'm not a much better ex-teacher than every other current teacher in the world. And so my presence does not really add value for writing bingo cards. Any teacher who you know, has taught elementary school English can write bingo cards as well as I can. And almost all of them are cheaper than me. So uh, it makes sense for me to uh, have the bingo cards written by someone else and then say, take that time and spend the time doing things that only I can do or that I'm clearly the best doing. Like. Um, you know, doing a marketing strategy for Bingo Card Creator, or uh, doing you know diving into the code internals of my uh, project. Um, one of the things that I do for outsourcing the control risk is that I only outsource things that I can check very very quickly. So I've never outsourced uh, substantial amounts of coding for Bingo Card Creator. I love outsourcing things like design because if I you know tell someone make a picture then the process of checking whether the picture works or not is to look at the picture and say, uh, it's pretty. So, um, like outsourcing pictures, logos, uh, bits of um, uh, the graphic that's on the top of appointment reminder. And, uh, those are wonderful, wonderful uh, things to do. Uh, outsourcing things like full systems where you'd have to you know, individually check every possible feature of the system to see if it works or not. Uh, do not strike me as a very good use of outsourcing. Right. Now, what about design? Did you outsource the complete design of uh, Appointment Reminder, right? Um, yes and no. 
So I outsourced the so if you look at the bottom of uh, appointment reminder, it probably says credit Woo themes. It's just a the marketing site is just a seventy five dollar Woo themes template. With um, then there's a very beautiful image at the top, and that beautiful image at the top was done by a, uh, a man named Melvin Rand, who's the principal at uh, uh, Volcanic Web Design. And man, he knocked that one out of the park. That uh, literally, people have seen that graphic and asked me to invest. Uh, whether they can invest in software. Well, wasn't I read some blog posts that there was a a, um, a designer, uh, I think a female designer from India, that worked on something for you? Uh, yeah, uh, that that's the bingo card creator design, the one that you can uh, see right now. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, um, uh, so originally, because I had no budget for bingo card creator when I started, well, I had like a sixty dollar budget, um, and bingo card creator has been profitable since I exhausted that sixty dollar budget. By the way. But um, right. <laughs> uh, so had no budget for graphical design, so I got an open source web template from opensourcewebdesign.org, OSWD.org, and uh, used uh, the most teachery design I could find. And uh, one of my friends made a logo for Bingo Card Creator, which had BCC and a you know flying buzz buzz B in it. And so. That was my web design for a couple of years when I was doing the, all the uh, things in Notepad. And when I upgraded to Rails, I thought, well, I'm probably only going to get one shot to um, uh, one shot when I'm going to do a complete redesign of the website. So uh, while, I, while I was upgrading to Rails, I upgraded the design to a uh, one that had gotten one that I had commissioned from a lady in India. Uh, she's credited in that in footer of my website. Her name is Kurt. Uh, do do do. Simran Power, and she's very talented. Um, I found her on, uh, let's see, Elance or Rent a Coder, which one was it? I think I want to say Elance. And uh, the way I knew she would, uh, uh, she was the right person for the job was I had put in the design brief. Um, you know, this site should um, should. Uh, I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but the idea was to make it appealing to. Uh, a female audience, and she addressed in her you know, proposal that yes, I can uh, make things that are appealing to female audiences. And then she linked her portfolio, and some of her uh, the sites on the portfolio were exactly you know that's the kind of thing that I wanted. And uh, she, uh, I'm very happy with the bingo card creator design that I got from her. Yeah, it looks nice. How now? How um, I don't know if you can talk about this, but how much would it cost to outsource a design to uh, to her, or I don't know. Um, designer. Uh, I think she charges more these days because she's extraordinarily talented, but I paid, uh, I think, $150 for the Bingo Card Creator design, which is just, um, you know, the design and one page of HTML coding. I did all the all the, the rest of the template hacking myself. And right, because really she just had to do the design, overall design. You know enough about HTML to do the rest. Right, and then, um, well, she did the, the skeleton and the HTML. Uh, okay. okay. And then... Uh, as I recall, I gave her a tip on on top of that because I thought, you know, she's clearly done more than $150 work for me. Uh, right. But uh, also, I uh, you can get a uh, a logo done for your website for a few hundred dollars these days. Uh, 99designs.com, for example, does design contests, or you can just pick a logo off the rack if you can find a decent one. Uh, the appointment reminder logo is $99. It's just a logo picked off the rack at, their desi- at the 99designs.com uh, logo store. 
So, uh, I, you know, you, you um, Patrick, you wrote uh, quite a long piece about the business of uh, software conference. Yes. And I, I recommend anybody who's interested in, in this kind of stuff go and, and read that on Patrick's blog. It's fantastic. It's quite long and in-depth, and it covers all of the, um, you know, sort of summarizes what I imagine would be most of the major speeches. Um, what what did you take away from the conference? What are the key points, I mean, that you think that any software entrepreneurs should should know? Um. The biggest takeaway from the Business of Software Conference is that you should absolutely go to the Business of Software Conference. <laughs> okay. I can't underline that enough. Um, you know, the, the, so the 10,000 words that I wrote about the public speeches were kind of the tip of the iceberg for the great advice that I got while I was there. Unfortunately, a lot of the great advice was in private conversations, so I can't talk about it, but you want to be in that crowd. It's fiercely intelligent people who are very, very generous with what they know. And they, they kind of, um, what's the phrase, open the kimono for you. Like, I know right. I was at a, sitting at a table with someone who does uh, control software for power plants, who's, you know, the, the uh, average installation costs many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he has a uh, quote-unquote real company and has been doing this for a while. And, you know, he was giving me basically answering almost any question I cared to ask about what does he know about hiring, what does he know about uh, uh, doing business-to-business sales, uh, what's the sales cycle like, how do you manage things like that. Um, so be at that conference. Now, in terms of the, in terms of the many, many ideas that I got from the, um, the presentations, uh, well, there's, like, I literally had a notebook of things that I wanted to start trying. Uh, literally today I was working on you know, my email integration I was telling you about earlier, and there were probably five bullet points that I pulled straight out of Rob Long's presentation uh, for things to try. I'll probably blog about that later. Um, if, you, if you just pick two things from that huge 10,000-word summary post of the three-day-long conference to try to implement, I'd recommend doing the Lean Startup, and I'd recommend doing uh, Dharma Shah's uh, Customer Happiness Index. Yeah, I thought the customer happiness index was a really interesting concept. Um, and we, I guess we probably don't have time to get into it now, but um, you know, you know, if you're listening to the show, go and uh, read that on uh, Patrick McKenzie's blog. We'll have a link in the uh, show notes because it's it's really there's a lot of valuable stuff. But this, but the stickiness metric and the um, or stickiness the stickiness feature in the um, Customer happiness index really interesting. Um, yeah, we've been we've uh, we've been really lucky in that it turns out that a lot of the people that you summarize you've actually interviewed on the show like uh, Derek Sivers and Rob Walling and Peldy and Jason Cohen. So uh, we know from firsthand experience that those guys are really smart and have a lot of really interesting things to say. And uh, so that seems really uh, it's like a great conference to go to. Um, and I'm wondering, are there any other conferences on top of conference that you that you think are interested in going to? Because lately, you know, there was the startup school, which was just like a, a few days ago, um, that was sort of the Y Combinator, run by Y Combinator. And then there was the um, future web apps. We had a um, our guest Alex uh, Gemmel on a couple weeks ago, and he talked about how awesome that conference was. Um, are there other conferences like these that you're thinking of attending? Um. Well. That's funny. I'm not really plugged into the conference scene. Uh, one reason, I live in Japan, and um, uh, up until recently I was working full-time and didn't really have the opportunity to go to anything. I went to the uh, software industry conference this uh, this summer, which is um, 
it's kind of focused more on the classical shareware kind of model, you know, uh, build a downloadable product and sell it through the internet uh, kind of folks, uh, rather than people doing web applications. So um, if that's your model, it's, uh, uh, they'll find, you know, things like how to work download sites, and that might be valuable to you. And of course, I got to meet people that I uh, had known from the internet, so that was always nice. Um, but uh, there's, uh, aside from business of software 2011, there's nothing that you know I have highlighted on my calendar for definitely must attend this. Yeah, I've, I've I had the opportunity to go to a lean startup event or uh, startup school or anything that had Y Combinator people talking. I would probably take the opportunity to go to that. It, it seemed almost like um, the startup school was for companies that are looking to get angel and venture funding, where the business of software was more about companies that have been bootstrapped and are, you know, working off of generated revenue. Right. And, um, uh, like, I hate to sound like I'm shilling here, but I will absolutely shill for this conference. Uh, not compensated, <laughs> by the way. The, uh, yeah. If you describe business of software in, in a sentence, it would be taking your software company to the next level because they've, you know, you have bootstrapped software companies. And when we say bootstrapped, we probably think of, you know, little companies that are selling 3000 or $10,000 of software a month, you know, something. That sounds like a bootstrapped company to me when I think bootstrapped. And those are a lot of people who have, you know, when they think bootstrapped, they think like Fog Creek bootstrapped. Like, yeah, that was it was bootstrapped up to $10,000 of revenue 10 years ago. And now it has, you know, 10, 20 employees or something. So you get the, the full range of, uh, of uh, companies from well, uh, somebody from a rice field in central Japan who makes bingo cards up to, you know, people who make uh, control software for power plants that if it crashes, <laughs> there will be headline news after people um, are able to turn on the television sets again. Well, one of the things about the, um, the Business for Software uh, conference um, is that... Um, it was almost a spiritual experience from what I heard. And if, if you get a chance, have a listen to uh, the Startup Podcast, the Startup Success Podcast, uh, episode number 85, where Patrick Foley d d basically describes his experience of it and um, it really gets it across and why it's such a good conference to be at. Especially towards the end of the conference. Um, well, there were, there were speaker dinners and whatnot, and uh, everyone got in a very sort of contemplative mood, I guess you would call it, uh, not just the, you know, obviously we're in the business of software. We talk about things like conversion rates and how to write software better. But um, uh, the discussion turned towards, you know, what are we here for? Why are we doing this? What is the purpose of our businesses? And uh, Joel Spolsky, Derek Sievers, a lot of people in the talks in the last two days concentrated on, you know, what impact does having this software business make in my life? What do I want to get out of it? What do I want my business to contribute to the world? And how do I go about getting that? And um, so uh, uh, if you have, they'll probably post a, post a video of it online, but if you have a opportunity to uh, watch Joel's speech, um, I think it's really valuable. He said some of the uh, most ethically challenging things about like in terms of confronting what you believe as your personal ethics as a businessman, as what the what uh, role your company plays in society, and what you should be doing to maximize your contribution to society. 
uh, that I that I had ever heard. And he laid that out in the course of two minutes. And I'll probably be digesting those two minutes for the next several months. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, it, it sounds like a great conference. And I, I would like to start attending some of these conferences. I've been sort of a non-participant <laughs> in that world. And uh, I don't know, it's probably time that uh, Justin and I get off our butts and, you know, travel. We, we definitely should. I mean, it, it's... It's a big investment. It's expensive. Yeah. I'm sure that it's like, how much does it cost? I mean, I'm guessing like a thousand or something. I think it's um, it was two thousand dollars or so for the ticket, and then you right. have to go to a luxury hotel for a couple of days. Um, right. Wow. So wow. It cost me. I got comp to the ticket because I was speaker, but um, uh, cost me a couple thousand dollars to go with a you know, plane trip to the United States and uh, staying at the hotel and buying food while I was there and totally worth it. We'd do it again, even though it cost me a month of revenue. <laughs> well, so Justin and I have an idea for our own poor man's conference, which is to see if we could get two or three of you guys on uh, a discussion podcast at the same time. I mean, like I mentioned, we, we've had Peldy and Jason Cohen, Rob Walling and Gabriel Weinberg and a lot of these really interesting guys on. And we thought it might be kind of fun if we could get like two or three of you on at the same time and do kind of like a twit style just a general discussion about a variety of topics would how do you think something like that would work would that be something that would interest you um potentially sure you know yeah. I, uh, one of the highlights of the business and software conference for me was actually getting to meet belty in the flesh um it's a very very uh inspiring and intelligent guy uh and yeah i love talking about these subjects um Talking about it with more people, I would almost never turn down an invitation for that. I mean, you know, here I am at 3 a.m. in the morning talking to you guys. About it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, uh, so we'll see if we can. Yeah. Jason, and by the way, Jason, I, I think it's probably time to wrap up the show. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're addicted to the subject. That's why these, these, these podcasts go on for so long. So, yeah, we'll try and see. We'll see if we can uh, organize, uh, you know, some of those discussion podcasts. And, and maybe if we can get uh, Peldy on with you, that would uh, be an extra incentive to get you on at three in the morning. <laughs> so, well, well, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time and staying up so late to talk to us. It, it's been a real oh, pleasure meeting you. Me. I love talking about you. Yeah, it's been really fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>